All right, well, hey, we're jump right into it. You follow me. You follow me. That's Jesus speaking to us, God speaking to us. This is what I feel in my heart tonight while I was just preparing and praying and saying, Lord, what do you want to speak to the table about? What do you want to speak to all of us about in our life and our heart? And I feel that tonight is going to be a look at me moment. And what I mean by that is picture God saying to you and I, look at me, look at me. Here's a great example. Our daughter, Evie, is about to be two next week, okay? And you all know at two, there is suddenly this will that begins to arise inside of a child. You know, a little statement like, I don't want to. We're like, where'd she learn this from? <laughs> this is what she said a hundred times in the last two days. I don't want to. I'm like, don't say it again, right? So, but this whole moment. So there's these moments where we have an opportunity to correct her. And so when she's sitting down and I'm trying to get her attention, okay, I'm trying to get her to listen to me, um, I'm seeing that she's like this. Da-da, da-da, da-da. Okay, she's looking around. Now, what am I doing? I'm like, Evie, look at me. Look at me. Anyone remember when you were a kid and your parents would be like, look at me. Look at my eyes, right? Look at me. Now, finally, it gets to these points sometimes where I, I grab her face and I say, Evie, look at me. Look at my eyes. There's a moment there that I'm having with her that I need to see her eyes looking at my eyes where then we can really begin to take the steps for her life to be the life God's called her to be, for her to change her attitude, for her to be obedient, and for her to be all that she's meant to be. But it starts here in this moment, this look at me moment. Look at me. I really feel that you are here tonight and God knew you were here because he wants to have this moment with you this evening. So I encourage you with your physical eyes and with your heart that you would hear all he has for us. You know, when I'm doing a wedding and the couple is standing there and they're looking at me, right? They're, they're facing me and I'm going through everything. When I ask them to then share their vows with one another, that's their commitment to each other. Whether they wrote them themselves, whether they, they were given the traditional ones, whatever that is, when that moment comes for the vows, I ask them to stand, turn, and face one another. So now they're no longer looking at myself. Now they're looking at each other in one another's eyes. And they share their vows. They share their commitments of how they'll love each other, how they'll be faithful, how they'll always forgive, and they'll keep on giving to one another, how they'll protect each other, be faithful to one another. And they're having this moment looking eye to eye, face to face. There's something very valuable. There's a reason behind that that they're not just words said out to get lost in a crowd or an audience or an officiant. No, they're words spoken to each other, facing one another, looking at each other. That moment, right? That first look, Oral Roberts University, I was there walking around. I'm there in, in the prayer gardens. We had prayer gardens there, these big gardens, right? Um, and that's where you catch a lot of couples. You're like, ah, prayer gardens. That's wrong. <laughs> Feel convicted, brother. So, so you go walk through the prayer gardens on the way to class. And so I was there, and I remember uh, <laughs> I'm walking, and I see Anna for the first time. And I remember thinking, hmm. Hmm, <laughs> no. <laughs> My father-in-law's here. It's okay, we're married. He gave me a blessing. He's happy. 
But I said, wow, she's pretty. She was actually on a date with someone else. <laughs> That's crazy. Now, listen, I won. I won. I just want you all to know that. I won. Yes, right. Woo! She saw me. She's like, forget that guy. What's your name, little Italian man? Um, from New York. We got it. No, but I saw her, and I just remember that, that moment, right, where I, I looked at her. I'm like, wow. And I could think of specific moments just in our relationship as it was blossoming, growing this where we saw each other, our eyes met, um, even to the point of our wedding, where we were there sharing vows, looking at one another, saying these, these words. Now, you know that a vow is great when it's spoken, but the way you see the fruit of what the, you're saying, the words that you're speaking, is by the actions you live out, the way you practice what you just said, right? Any marriage is going to be strong, if there's follow-through off the promises they made to one another. But if those words that are just spoken and that moment happens, which is very important, every journey begins with a moment. But if there's no follow-through, if there's no actions behind that, you won't see the fruit of the promises and the vows you just made to one another. So tonight, I hope as we're conversing and talking about this, that you're hearing it's both. It's a look-at-me moment, but it's also then an action for us to take steps that are required by us. Matthew 7, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is speaking, and there's this part right here in uh, verse 24 through 27 where he talks about two different types of foundations, and I want to read that to us. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, puts them into action, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Putting these words into action. There is something about being active in our response to God that we then see promises fulfilled in our life. We then see things begin to flourish. See, many times I think in my conversations that I have with you and even in my own conversations with myself through my journey, I've wondered why am I not seeing the fruit that I want to for my life? And I've had mentors or brothers in my life say, hey, you have to begin to take some action. You know, I studied theology. I wrote a lot of papers. I did a lot of study. I had a lot of conversations about God. But I remember one thing that my father told me before I went into my studies. He said this, if you're going to come through this, you're going to do six years of school, undergrad and graduate school of theology, hard questions, always ask. Just realize this, Stephen. Don't put down your personal walk with God in order just to pick up another book. Keep both in that balance and that tension. That's a good tension. And in that process, I knew that I couldn't just read and think and ponder about God. That was good. That was something that sparked and stimulated then my feet and my hands to be the action of seeing God and what he was going to do. So in that, I want to encourage you we went through the whole Our Heritage series these last couple weeks. Action is required. 
Hear these words, Jesus said, that I'm speaking. Hear them. Listen to them. Look at me as I'm sharing them with you. But put them in the action, and if you will, then your life will be built on that rock and that foundation. We wonder why we're constantly in a place where we feel we're falling down or we can't get our footing. And oftentimes I ask people, I say, what is the actions of your life revealing? And if they say, well, what do you mean by that? Then I know we got to start somewhere. You got to start taking those actions. So that is a big portion of what the discussion is tonight. But there's something very specific, I believe, for our generation that we need to discuss. See, there's an issue I think we have of wandering eyes, right? Wandering eyes. Am I talking physically? Yes. Am I talking also in a way that's spiritual? Yes. Eyes that wander. Remember my daughter, Evie, when she's at an age where everything is new and she's discovering things, what this means, this is hot, this is cold, this is what this word, I'm putting sentences together. Ooh, that's what that smells like. That's what this, so there's, that's what that tastes like. All these sensory things happening in her life. Now, we live in a world where there is so much happening, right? Social media and technology, there is so much happening. And remember, Evie, like this? I think that many of us walk around life like this, right? Just, just look what we're desperate for when you are speaking or teaching in a, in, a, in a group of people, when a fly comes into the room, how exciting that moment is for people. Because they're listening and then it's like, because <laughs> we're just looking for something. It happens. So in that, we have this wandering eye. What is everyone else doing? What is everyone else up to? And I think many times we find that it makes us unsettled. We wonder, why do I not feel settled? Why does our generation constantly, we've talked about anxiety being one of the biggest things we battle with. Such an unsettling, constantly wondering, no footing. Because we're walking around in life with wandering eyes. And if you have wandering eyes, you're going to have a wandering heart and soul. Because there's a scripture I want to read to you. Matthew 6 this is the Sermon on the Mount. Before Jesus said, put these things I'm saying in action, he said this, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. Wandering eyes create a wandering heart and soul. So I think many of us find ourselves in this place. We don't want to miss out. It's not a bad thing, but we don't want to miss out. We're always wondering what's going on. Why didn't I get the text message? Am I in that group text? Did they not invite me to this? Am I not a part of this? This seemed really cool. I should have been there. I should have been there, but instead I missed it. So we're always at this place, not wanting to miss out, looking, keeping our options open. What are other opportunities that I might have? Lack of commitment in our life because we're waiting for other opportunities to see what will open up. And many times what's interesting, and listen, I'm not preaching at you. I'm talking with you from my own mistakes and what I've battled with in my life. But it's interesting because sometimes I want the depth of something 
but I'm not willing to be committed and dig that hole and plant and water and see what grows out of that. I want the depth, I want the fruit, but I don't want to put the commitment, I don't want to put the work into it. I think many times we find ourselves in that place and we ask, why do I feel so unsatisfied? Why do I feel so unfulfilled? Wandering eyes create a wandering heart and soul. Now there's a danger of wandering eyes and a wandering heart. There's a danger of that. And I think the largest danger is this, comparison. When your eyes are constantly wandering in life, looking around, because you don't want to miss out and you're just wondering, okay, what's happening over there? What's here because I'm unsettled, I'm unsatisfied. When you're doing this, all of a sudden what catches your eyes? Ah, that guy's life is so good, man. Man. Oh. So good. And then, you, and then this is what happens. You're at your job that you do not like, that is so boring, and you decide for two minutes to go on Instagram. And as you're scrolling through, you see this a picture of someone at their job, and they're like, best job ever, hashtag. And they're like jumping out of a plane with a parachute. And you're like, my life stinks. This guy has it made. You know, social media can be a great tool. Communication, inspiration, all that stuff. But it also can be a really dangerous weapon in our life. And especially for comparison. You're having a rough day like everyone has. Things feel so monotonous. You're going here and doing this, the same person, the same meal, the same this, right? And you're just like, oh. And then you're going through Facebook or social media. Someone puts a post up with their feet up and a coffee cup. It's like, these are just my days. And you're like, this guy, this girl, they have the life. We compare, we're constantly thrown into this place of consistent comparison, comparison of our life with others. And many times it's because we, we, we are unsatisfied or we desire affirmation. And so we begin to take that comparison to another level, not just observing and saying, man, their life seems so good. I wish I had it. then regretting the life we live or looking down upon the tasks that we're given every day, not enjoying them. And slowly, what does comparison do? It steals our joy. You walk around and you wonder, where is my joy? Where is my joy? Where is my happiness and fulfillment? And in my own life, I experienced this, and I'll be real with you guys, just a few months ago. I started saying, where's my joy? Where's my deep fulfillment and joy? And I realized that it was comparison that was robbing that from me. That it was like acid. It was corroding the pipes of my life. And so every time the water would come through those pipes of my life, there was a little bit of rust coming out. Where was my joy? You know, it's so interesting in the midst of this time, God is so good. I was at an event, and I was just kind of in the background. No one knew I was there. I was just hanging out there, and there was a visiting group there of some college students. So this kid came up to me, 
didn't know who I was, didn't know what I was walking through. He said, excuse me, I just feel I want to tell you something. I just feel, and this is in the midst of everything that's going on. He said, I just feel God wants to mark you with joy. He wants to mark you with joy. And I looked at him and I said, wow, God's speaking right to you. It's exactly what I need to hear in this place at this time from you. Someone who was so disconnected, but God used him and spoke to him. And it was from there that I realized there was a root of comparison. And it is so easy the day and age we live in. It is right there in our pocket to just compare and then say, what is the value of my life? And listen, can I just be real with you here? I want to encourage you. People put posts up and they're great. People put posts up with their three kids and they say something like, this is the life, this is the best family ever. My girls are great. And that's awesome that they do that. I put posts up like that. What they don't show you is 10 minutes before the wrestle that took place to put the girls' hair together and put their outfits on and the poopy diapers that were everywhere. So they don't show you all that, right? And so we begin to idolize and rejoice over just these very quick captured photographic moments that communicates something that rises comparison up inside of us when really we need to begin to look at the whole picture. We need to begin to look at the journey. So once comparison begins to rule your life, jealousy begins to corrode your life. Then you wonder why you're a grumpy and frustrated person. Listen, many of you, you might live at home with your parents. You're in your early 20s, mid-20s, late-20s, you begin to compare your life to other people. They're on their own. They have the best job. And that just begins to rob the joy of what God has for you. Oh, they're married. They have kids. Oh, he's in a relationship. She's in a relationship. Oh, I wish I had that. And that's okay to say I desire a relationship, but when you begin to compare and then that comparison begins to eat away at your heart and your soul when your eyes are wandering and you're looking at those things and you're desiring those things now and jealousy begins to brew, then all of a sudden you wonder, where's the fruit of my life? There's a story of a man named Peter, the Apostle Peter, also goes by the name of Simon. And we're going to have a snapshot moment where he compared And Jesus has a response to him. First, just to give you a little bit of the background of who Simon was, he was a fisherman. Simon had a brother named Andrew. Andrew followed a great man by the name of John the Baptist, a prophet, Jesus' cousin. So Jesus arrives on the the scene, and Andrew's like, hey, I think we found the, the Messiah, Simon. Come meet him. So Simon goes, and he meets Jesus, and Jesus looks at him, and he says, Simon, We're going to call you Peter, Cephas, meaning rock. Peter's like, great, that's good, that's encouraging. He goes back doing what he's doing, goes back being a fisherman. He's on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus comes to him and gives a message from his boat. And after he's done, he says, all right, will you come follow me? I desire for you to be fisher of men. And Peter says yes. He drops everything and he begins to follow Jesus. Now, understand this. Peter's a bit of a rough guy. If you read the accounts through the Gospels, 
He's also a little bit of a loud mouth, right? So whenever there's an opportunity for a response, he's the first one to say something. There's so many, any of you are that person? Keep your hands down. Oh, it's all right. That's healing. Healing's happening here. You know, there's a moment where Jesus says, who am I? And Peter says, you are the Christ. And it's an inspired moment by the Spirit of God. You're the Son of the living God. And Jesus is like, that's great. Peter, God spoke through you in that moment. But there's other moments where Jesus says, I got to go to Jerusalem. I got to lay down my life. Peter pulls Jesus aside. He's like, you cannot do that. I forbid you to go. And Jesus says, step behind me, Satan. So there's all these moments. Peter's always, initially, he's responding. Jesus says, one of you will betray me. He's talking about Judas. And then Peter says, I'll never leave you, Lord. I'll be by your side. First one to respond. And then Jesus says to him, Peter, you're going to deny me three times this evening. The band can make their way back up at this time. And so there at that point where Jesus is taken and he begins his journey to Calvary, there's three opportunities where Peter denies Jesus Christ, even associating and knowing him, being with him. And Peter's so ashamed of himself, it says he went away and he just wept, he just wept, he just wept. Once Jesus raised from the dead, he wants to reinstate Peter. So there's this other moment that takes place. And it's interesting how when he reinstates Peter, He's doing it the same place he once called Peter to come and follow him. Where he said, hey, Peter, you heard the words I said, but now it's time to take action. Come follow me. And so now again, Peter is out. He's fishing. They see Jesus at the shore. And they say, it's the Lord. Peter jumps out, swims to him shows up, and it says that Jesus was there with a fire going, and he had cooked some fish and bread. The original first century chef right there. It's amazing. Hey, if you're a chef out there, Jesus cooked bread and fish out by Sea of Galilee. I mean, doesn't that sound good? I'm not even a fish person. I'm like, that sounds delicious. I just love those little moments in the gospel because they reveal just how relatable Christ is to us. Yeah, sometimes, this is a side note, sometimes you see this, this version of who Jesus is and it feels so distant and far away. But I hope tonight what you're hearing is how close he wants to be with you, how real he is. And he knew those guys were hungry, not just spiritually but physically, and he was going to feed them. And so there all the disciples arrive and they eat together and they break bread with one another and then Jesus says, hey, Peter, come over here. Let's talk. So they begin walking. And Jesus says, hey, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord. And Jesus says, then feed my sheep. Ask again, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, then feed my sheep. He asked him again, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Now he's a little frustrated. Why do you keep asking me? Yes, Lord. And Jesus says, then feed my sheep. And as they're walking, we get this picture that John, who recorded this, the apostle known as the Beloved, is kind of following behind them. And Jesus basically says to Peter, predicting his future, Peter, you've dressed yourself, you do what you wish, but there'll be one day where you won't dress yourself, you'll extend your hands, 
because others are pulling them. You'll follow my will for your life. And here's this moment. Peter turns around and he looks at John walking behind him. And he says this, Lord, but what about him? See, this root of comparison was deep in Peter. I would actually argue that consistently throughout his following of Jesus, he's constantly trying to find his place, even though he's one of, if not the most famous apostles. But he's constantly trying to find his place, being the first one to say something, standing out and do this, and all that moment. And now, even in this intimate moment, he's still trying to compare. His eyes are still wandering, and this is what Jesus says. If I want him, John, to remain alive until I return, what is that to you, Peter? You must follow me. You must follow me. It's a look at me moment. Peter, stop. You have to follow me. This is much more than just an opportunity, Peter, to be a part of a movement. This is a relationship I'm inviting you into. This is a level of intimacy that the world has never known between God and man. And I'm asking you, Peter, to follow me. Not simply to join a movement or take hold of a good opportunity, but to embrace a relationship. In that moment, Peter had to be willing to surrender his expectations in order to embrace the purpose God had for him. It was actually time for Peter to put his love into action because it's interesting. There's no response from Peter. There's no response from Peter. And he's silent until we see in Acts 2. You wonder what was going on through his mind and heart at that time. That moment. That face-to-face moment. And then in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit falls on the apostles first time then after that moment with Jesus we see Peter open his mouth was a surrendered Peter and he gives one of the most famous impactful messages we see in the New Testament where 3,000 people in that city accept Jesus Christ and are baptized it says that the words of Peter pierced the hearts of those listening Because finally, when Peter was speaking in the words he was saying, it was an overflow of the surrendered action in life that he was living. He wasn't comparing himself anymore. He knew that God had something for him. And no matter what others were going to do, he was going to follow him. Stop comparing your life to others. Stop comparing your life to others. It will just bring you down a road of destruction. It will just rob joy and purpose and fulfillment from your life. See, Jesus said, those who put my words into action will have lives built 
on the foundation of a rock. See, suddenly Peter in that moment, Peter, you follow me. He stopped just blurting things out, and he began walking things out. And when he began to walk those things out, he then saw the fulfillment of even what his name meant, rock, one who would not be shaken, Peter, the rock. See, the Lord calls you by name, and he has a deep purpose for your life. But you've got to stop with your eyes being focused on others. And you've got to turn your eyes to him and have this face-to-face moment. You have to follow him. Stop comparing, being jealous. You wonder why you have depression in your life? You wonder why you battle with laziness? You wonder why you wake up and go to sleep unsatisfied? Get your eyes off of others. And turn your eyes to the Lord. And sometimes we feel like we have to market the value of our life to those around us by proving it in some way with something we post, something we say. We weigh our value on the scales of social media or the world, what others think of us. But really, It's time for us to weigh our value on the one who's calling us. Because tonight, he's just confirming again in your life, you follow me. You follow me. And he calls you by name. Isaiah 43 says this. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, who formed you, Israel, because of what Jesus did, we're in that now. We've been brought into that family and that heritage. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, and the flames will not set you ablaze. This is the one who's calling to you. If you would just look at him and say, yes, Lord, and begin that journey. If you would just keep your eyes on him. Turn to him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three young men, feared God and wouldn't bow down to an idol and a false god. And because of that, they were thrown into a fiery furnace. They wouldn't bend to it even if they knew it was going to take their life. But suddenly in the midst of that fire, Jesus appears to them. King says it appears that even it's son of God in there. There's four men now. And they come out, no smell of smoke, and the only thing broken are the ropes that tied them. They kept their eyes on him. They looked at him. They would not bend to the culture. And they even took that journey into a place that looked to this world as it was a place of death. But what came from it was a kingdom that was transformed. And that everyone in that kingdom heard the story of three young men whose God is the one true and real God. What could happen to Long Island if we just turn our eyes to Jesus and we look to him?
What could happen if we suddenly hear in this face-to-face, this look-at-me moment between you and God right now when he says, you, John, you follow me. Jessica, you follow me. Get your eyes off of everything around you and those and comparing. But their calling is so much cooler. Their job is so much better. They were such a better person. I'm not worthy. Get your eyes off of them. He's looking at you tonight. He's grabbing your face. He's having a moment with you. Don't miss it. But this moment requires you to begin a journey. Can you stand up this evening? I encourage you that if you embrace this, you will be shocked at how even the monotonous things of life begin to burst with purpose. Even the things that just seem like they're monotonous, the minutia of life will begin to birth with purpose. There's a man who works here every Friday. You see him and you might not even know his name. His name's Vincenzo. He helps do things around the facility here. You could look at some of the things he does and say, oh, setting up chairs or telling someone to go clean this wing or turning the AC down, all these things, oh, They just seem monotonous. If you ever stop and you ask Vincenzo and you talk with him like I have, how do you like working here? He says this. A man who could do many things. He's got many talents and skills. And he said this. This is my worship. If I'm sweeping, if I'm stacking chairs, if I'm giving direction, I'm worshiping the Lord in this. Even the things that seem monotonous. And when you see him work, you know how many people stop and say, tell me about who you are, the opportunities that happen, the ministry moments where he shares his story, what Jesus has done in him. See, I think we have it all wrong. We think we have to reach this mountaintop experience. And we don't want to take the climb to get to it. But see, it's in the climb that people will begin to see Christ glorified in us. And then at that mountaintop experience, they're seeing past us and seeing him above us. That's what it's all about. So Jesus, we pray in this moment, even now, as we worship you, a response, we would have that look at me moment with you. We would hear you saying and calling us by name, you, you follow me. You follow me. Let our eyes look to you and you alone. In Jesus' name. Amen.